If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, I'd like to meditate tonight on verses 8 and 9, 8b through 9. The book of Hebrews is concerned with the superiority of Christ. Christ is better than anything, better than the Old Testament priesthood and temple and all of that. And it's a message calling God's people to persevere and not to give up hope, but to press on. Hebrews chapter 2, let's read the whole chapter beginning at verse 1. Thankful that we can hear the God-breathed scriptures. Hebrews 2 at verse 1. Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. If you go back to verse 8b and 9, I'll read those again. Underneath that quotation of Psalm 8, we read, 
For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. Should we ask God for his help tonight as we bow in prayer? Oh, Lord, our God, we would plead tonight for a visit from the living and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. And we would ask that he would come near to us by his Holy Spirit to speak his word of life to us, that we might see and know and be more assured than ever that Christ lives and reigns and in him is our glory. Oh, Father, would you grant that so that our lips might praise you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, in thinking about our text for tonight, my mind was drawn to a book on my shelf by the late Dr. R.C. Sproul. I think it was published 40 years ago, entitled In Search of Dignity, and then republished 10 years later with the title The Hunger for Significance. And Sproul's making the point that, that we all have this innate desire that our lives should matter, that they should count for something, that, that life should be important. And of course, it's it's hard, it's difficult, because so many things seem to war against that. I was looking at the preface by Charles Colson, the founder of Prison Fellowship International, who himself, maybe you know, was imprisoned for his role in the Watergate scandal. But he came to Saving Faith, and he became a leader in different ways, and he, in his preface to Sproul's book, he writes that, that Sproul's book that he's introducing speaks in understandable terms to one of the most critical issues of our day, the dignity and worth of man. And what he goes on here to describe the need for that, his comments, I guess, written 40 years ago, sound very, very up-to-date. He says, look at our modern civilization. Machines are replacing people. Incredible technological progress in our century has taken authority away from the individual and vested it in huge, impersonal institutions. And people often don't care, he says. For many, for many people, reality is no longer their own lives, but what they see transmitted in living color across the electronic screen in their living room night after night. The 20th century technocracy has left man feeling helpless, alienated, and impotent, at the same time, the forces of humanism have been on the rise telling us that man has no ultimate purpose beyond living for the moment. So why not do whatever one wants or nothing? If life is without meaning, so is the individual. It's the world we still live in tonight, isn't it? If anything, it has increased, right, the sense of meaninglessness and hopelessness, the loss of, of human dignity. Many these days are taking their own lives. Many feel alienated and isolated. Life has no purpose for them. For many people, what they find on social media or what they find on the Internet is the only reality they seem to live in. For many people, there is great sorrows tonight. We think about the school shooting in Texas, 
And for many people, I'm sure it's hopelessness, it's chaos, it's darkness. What meaning, what glory, what dignity is there to these lives of human beings? As evolution is taught more and more and people insist that we just came by chance, what, what meaning could there be? Where is all the glory? Well, the recipients of this first letter of Hebrews, though they were Christians and knew so many things more than the world, they still had a struggle, you see, because they had suffered in the past, they had endured loss of property, imprisonment, all these kinds of things, and they had come through that because they had been enlightened and they believed the gospel. But now, years later, it appears persecution is coming again. The writer says, you've not yet resisted to the point of bloodshed, suggesting maybe that they will. But you see, as the pressure gets turned up upon these Christians, some have stopped coming to church. Some are distancing themselves now from from Christ. Some are returning to Jewish family and wanting to reestablish those bonds and can't stand the ostracism. Some are giving up hope in Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews says... You've got to see the glory of Jesus if you would know your purpose and your glory and why it's all worthwhile. And tonight we need to see that. We need to see that our glorious purpose has been secured in the ascension of our Lord Jesus into heaven. And as our eyes are set upon him, then we have meaning and purpose. Let's look at that tonight. Three questions I'd like to ask and answer. Number one, what do, excuse me, what don't we see? And then what do we see? And then what will we see? Those three questions. What don't we see right now? What can we not see? What do we by faith see right now? And what will we one day see? First of all, what don't we see? We don't see a world where things are set straight. We see a frustrated world. We don't see a world where it's clearly evident in every life and in every place the glorious purpose for which God made us. The writer of Hebrews here is reflecting upon Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is a celebration of God's grace towards us in the beginning, that he made us in his image and he made us for great glory. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? Actually, just before where the writer starts quoting Psalm 8 here, in Psalm 8, the verse before this, the the psalmist is observing the the work of God's fingers and and the moon and the stars. It's as if he's he's out there at night beneath an expansive night sky and considering the grandeur and the greatness of God and how small he is. Then he says, what is this, that me, a little ant, you think upon me? What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. Well, it's an expression of astonishment, isn't it? And wonder. To think of that creation account that God makes, man and woman, his image, and he sets them as the king and the queen, the the rulers of his world. What a bestowal of authority and dominion. What astonishing blessing to be the friends of God, the children of God, the rulers in the name of the Lord. But as we know in Genesis, something goes terribly wrong, doesn't it? Because Adam and Eve, instead of, instead of saying, what is this? What, what dignity, what glory you have, you have clothed our lives with? 
They turn on God and they listen to the devil and they say, you know, we should be a, we should be a little more elevated. We could be like God. Something has gone wrong. The writer says, you put all things in subjection under his feet. In fact, the writer of Hebrews goes on after that quote and says, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. He's emphasizing how great is the dominion. And then he says, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. Our experience mocks our original purpose, doesn't it? We are a long way off from our original design. At present, we do not see all things beneath our feet. But God's design and glorious purpose for our lives has been frustrated by our rebellion in which we forfeited the glory and the honor in which God had made us. What folly when Adam and Eve ate of that fruit. What a twisted mass of darkness this world is. Matthew Henry writes these memorable words describing that original treachery. Now when it was too late, he writes, they saw the folly of eating forbidden fruit. They saw the happiness they had fallen from and misery they had fallen into. They saw a loving God provoked, his grace and favor forfeited, his likeness and image lost, dominion over the creatures gone. They saw their nature corrupted and depraved. They saw themselves disrobed of all their ornaments and ensigns of honor, degraded from their dignity and disgraced in the highest degree, laid open to the contempt and reproach of heaven and earth and their own consciences. You see it? In that moment of eating the fruit, the great glory God had bestowed upon us was so much lost and frustration and futility came into the world and now this This glorious image bearer of God lives for a short time in the world and is laid in the dust. It's a very superficial rule we have for the world tonight, isn't it? We don't rule so well. In fact, we often find that animals attack people. We find that storms and winds blow homes down. We find a world full of Warfare and hatred, witness Russia and Ukraine. We see the horrors of a school massacre again. We, these glorious image bearers on the earth, look around, you'll be disillusioned. And even as Christians, we struggle, don't we, against our own sin? We struggle not to come under the power of addictions. We struggle to serve our Lord day after day. And we, we see the degradation in our own bodies, don't we? We don't feel so glorious when we visit the doctor, when we're sick or diseased or broken. We struggle against fears and worries. We endure breakdowns in relationships and can't find peace sometimes in our homes or in our neighborhoods or at work. And we as Christians are not accounted a glorious people, but the scum of the earth. We do not 
We do not see all things put under us, do we? We do not behold a glorious reign. Commentators puzzle sometimes as to whether those words in verse 8, we do not yet see all things put under him, if the him refers to mankind in general or refers to Christ. But really, they're quite connected, aren't they? We don't see all things put beneath us. We don't see all things, even at this point, put beneath our Lord Jesus, do we? Because still today, people use his name as a curse word, and they refuse to bow. Christ has not yet put all his enemies beneath his feet, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. So what don't we see tonight? We don't see the glory of our destiny. We don't see the glory of the purpose which we are made. We don't see the wonder that we should rule in the name of God on high. But what do we see tonight? What do we see? What is it that we see that allows us, that enables us to press on in our Christian faith? Well, notice, secondly, what we do see. Verse 8, we do not yet see all things put under him, but verse 9 But we see Jesus. We see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. You see it? What we failed so miserably to attain, Jesus Christ has taken for our sakes. Psalm 8 does not describe the reality in regard to mankind in general, but it does describe our Lord Jesus Christ, who called himself the Son of Man, who who comes as the new Adam, as the last Adam, who, who comes to redo our lives, who comes to fulfill our destiny. If you want to see what, what human life is, look at the Lord Jesus in his glory. He has come to fulfill the destiny of man. Christ's ascension into heaven, being lifted from this earth up into glory and seated upon the throne, is the reward of his great work. That he humbled himself and came down from heaven for our sakes, that he died our death, and now he's been taken into the highest heaven. So, uh, Philippians chapter 2 says that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And for that reason, now God has highly exalted him, right? Given him the name above every name. That in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Our comfort tonight is that we don't see, although we don't see all things in subjection to us, we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. That though we still struggle against our sinful nature, we struggle with the pain of loss, losing loved ones. We struggle with the brokenness and the damage done by sin. We struggle with all these trials. We don't see on earth the glory we long for. Our lives often feel filled with shame and degradation. But we see Jesus in glory. Our Lord Jesus in glory. And that's our hope. Because this is our confident guarantee and it's our sufficient comfort to see Christ in glory. The ascension of that Christ who was crucified and hung on a cross, his being taken up and seated in glory is the guarantee that all things will be put beneath his feet. Because Jesus lowered himself to die our death, because he he tasted death for everyone, therefore, verse 9 is saying, he's been exalted. 
and crowned with glory and honor. Now think, brothers and sisters, of what the death of Jesus was. It's, it was the answer of God to our great dilemma. We failed. We refused to achieve the destiny for which God made it. We, we rejected our mandate. We threw away the keys to the palace to rule in God's name over all that he's made. And we, we suffered the penalty. And into this blessed world God made came the curse and the thorns and the thistles and the, the pain in childbearing and the distress in marriages and the curse of death these bodies wasting away until laid in a tomb. And what did God do? Some weeks ago, I saw one of those Russian POWs in Ukraine being interviewed, and he, he was, according to the translator, he was lamenting the fact. He was saying, our commander sent us here as, as cannon fodder. They left us here to die. And he was, in so many words, saying they, they had no respect for our lives. They, they took away our dignity. They, they just sent us out into battle to be slaughtered. But what of our God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we had destroyed ourselves and robbed ourselves of dignity and honor, and come under the curse and deserve to die and to be left, not now with eternal glory, but with eternal shame. What did God do? He sent his beloved son into the world. The son of God came from the highest heights down to be made one like us in our flesh. So that he could be disrobed of all the ornaments of his glory. It could have heaped upon him all the shame and the abuse. It could be treated by humans as if he was not a human. It could suffer under God's wrath as one who deserved no blessing. Because that's what you and I deserved. And that he might set us free and restore to us glory and honor. And do you see it now, the fact that he is lifted to the highest heavens? God is shouting to us the news tonight that Christ has done it. Dignity to man is restored. Glory is brought back into your lives. And your future is not an eternal shame, but an eternal glory in God's presence. Christ has been crowned because Christ has done it. He tasted death for all of us. Tasted doesn't mean that he sampled it, as we think of tasting, but it means that he, in the most intimate of ways, was confronted with death and bore all of it, the shame and the curse, and took it to himself in our place. What a wonderful thing. Christ, by his saving work, has achieved for us the glorious destiny that we threw away. He has fulfilled the original mandate given to Adam. You know, as Christ walked upon the earth, he ruled over himself. Our, our pathetic state is that we don't, don't rule over the world properly. We don't even rule over our hearts properly, right? We, we're often ruled by our possessions, ruled by our whims, ruled by our passions. But the Lord Jesus, as he walked upon the earth, he ruled over himself. He fulfilled his mandate. He laid down his life on the cross. He was always obedient to the mandate. 
And by his death, he's obtained dominion over the heavens and the earth, but not just for himself, but also for us. As one writer puts it, his coronation with glory and splendor provides assurance the power of sin and death has been broken. Consequently, men and women will be led to the full enjoyment of the glory God intended for them. That's what we see. We see Christ, our Savior, the perfect man, the obedient man, the suffering man, now crowned with glory and honor. And if that's what we see, then it guarantees that we will see something. And that's what we consider finally tonight. Not just what we don't see. We don't yet see the glory. Not just what we do see. We see Christ in glory, but we now consider what we will see. The day that we'll be in glory. When the writer of Hebrews says in verse 8c, But now we do not yet see all things put under him. He seems to be understanding Psalm 8 as a prophecy. That when God spoke in Psalm 8 of putting all things beneath man, the writer of Hebrews sees actually a prophecy that will be put beneath the Son of Man, the last Adam. One day all things will bow before Christ. There'll be no more blaspheming his name. There'll be no more rebellion against him. Every knee will bow before the Lord Jesus, and he will have perfect rule over all his enemies. But you know what? The shocking thing is, is that we're destined to reign with him. Romans 8 says that the creation right now is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. The whole of creation is waiting to see the glorious sons of God. Hebrews 2 says in verse 10, It was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Our Lord Jesus is the head of a great company of sons and daughters of God who are destined to be brought to glory, destined to share In Christ's honor. Jesus says in Revelation 3 verse 21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. You see the good news tonight? The good news tonight, dear saints of God, is not just that as you look at Jesus, you see what it means to be human. But it is that as you look upon Jesus, you see the one who has restored to you what it means to be human. We are restored to honor. We will reign with Christ. Our glorious future will be the glorious intention of God for our lives, that Christ will come saying, Here am I and the children you have given me. Here am I, O God, and the sons of God I have brought to glory. You have to stand amazed tonight at the wonder. Christ's victory is our victory. His ascension is our ascension. His crown is our crown. His glorified humanity is our glorified humanity. What a comfort. Certainly is to affect in how we are to live. If we are 
able by grace to know what will be, what we will one day see our glory, then it certainly affects how we are to live. Because as we gaze into heaven, seeing Jesus Christ seated in glory, we're looking into a mirror and saying, that's my destiny. Instead of battles of old that when soldiers were knocked down, when they were facing loss of courage, when they, when they felt defeated, when, when they were ready to turn and run, when their captain rose up and pressed forward, that their hearts would soar with new courage and follow after him. Well, the captain of your salvation has entered glory. The captain of your salvation is not undone by this world. He's risen triumphant. He's ascended to the throne. There goes your captain. Follow after him. So the writer of Hebrews will say in that wonderful beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, That as we run our race, we are, verse 2, to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls." You have not yet resisted to the bloodshed, striving against sin. You've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. What is the writer of Hebrews saying? He's saying, have you seen the Lord Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith? Have you considered what he endured from men and what he bore under God's wrath? Have you looked upon the way he achieved victory? By keeping his eyes upon the joy set before him? And have you seen now Christ in his joy, in his exaltation? Then run with endurance your race. Because you know what awaits you. If that is your glory, then what affects how we invest our time on earth too, doesn't it? It affects how we live our lives. We're not just so many hopeless souls wasting our time because there's no meaning or purpose. We're not so many vacuous lives living our life on the internet somewhere because we have nothing to live for. We're nobodies. We're people to live with zeal for our great king who's coming again for us. We're not those who are prone to be mastered by sin and willing to give in to any addiction and any sinful pleasure, anywhere we can find a little moment's relief. We have our eyes upon a prize. What about disease and sickness? We're not paralyzed by the fear of death. We have a risen, victorious Savior who will raise us up in glory. The Lord Jesus is our victory. And what about our bonds with each other? The writer of Hebrews speaks those wonderful words that our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 11, 
is not ashamed to call us his brethren because he's one with us. Both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. And wouldn't the Holy Spirit tell us that we ought not to be ashamed to call each other brothers and sisters either? Even when we see one another stumble, we don't shake our heads and distance ourselves and be ashamed because we look upon that other one and say, that brother, that sister is destined for glory. We are one. We inherit this kingdom together. That's my brother. That's my sister. And then one more thing by way of application. And with this, I'll close. Our worship. Our worship is a taste of true humanity. Something marvelous is said in verse 12. That Christ, who's not ashamed to call us brethren, says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing your praise. And the good news is that the ascended Lord Jesus Christ is our great worship leader. And when we gather in his name, assembled as his people, it is the glorious Christ who is pleased to be present and to lead us in singing praise to his God and Father. And I submit to you tonight that no more, or maybe I should say nowhere, nowhere more than in worship singing God's praise do we taste of the joy of being truly human, gloriously made for God, than when we know God in fellowship and in worship. We ought never to take for granted these God-ordained occasions by which we together, looking to Jesus upon the throne, assembled as those pilgrims making our way into glory, should together lift up praise to God. And in those moments, know we were made for this. We were made for this. To know God and to enjoy him forever. What a word of comfort Christ gives to his church through the writer of Hebrews. To a people who no doubt were tempted to be dismayed and disillusioned. Family relationships are not going well. Becoming a Christian didn't lift them up to glory. It painted a target on their backs. And now they're tempted to give up. And Jesus Christ says no. Not yet. You don't yet see all the glory, but you see all that you need. You see me, your victorious Savior, upon the throne, crowned the victor with glory and honor that I've taken hold of for you. For you. Brothers and sisters, we know tonight what the dying world has no idea about. We know the great mystery, the great purpose of our lives, and the only way out of the futility and the darkness and into everlasting joy and glory. 
May God make us glad to know that, thankful. It may give us hearts that want to share that news with all the hopeless lives we meet. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your holy word and for our victorious Savior. Oh God, give us the eyes to see. We confess it's difficult for us. But as you visited Stephen and parted the clouds that he could see the glory of his Savior, so God, we pray that you would let us see and so we might believe. Heavenly Father, save us, we pray, from thinking like the world. Save us from the lies of the evil one who tells us there's no hope. Restore to us, O Lord, the vision that we might behold our victorious Savior, that we might run our race with endurance, that we might have the joy set before us also. We give praise to our Lord Jesus who has conquered, who has been crowned, and who will never, who will never die again. May he fill our lives with himself by his word and spirit. We pray that he'd minister his word to us tonight in all the dark corners and hopeless spots where we need to hear again that life has meaning and that glory is restored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.